the story, the children's story that you heard is more than just a filler. It is the essence of what Jesus is doing in Mark chapter 2. If we were to go through chapter 1 of Mark, see we're running the slides here. In Mark chapter 1, the chapter is about giving. Jesus is acting his part as a servant. He has been called to do that. The, the theme verse in Mark is in chapter 10, that he came to seek and to save that which was lost and to be a, a servant to many. Jesus heals and make friend, makes friends in chapter 1 of Mark. Chapter 2 turns a corner, and it is a very abrupt turning. And it comes to the essence of who Jesus is in his manhood. We know, just given the, given the, the intelligence and, and the um, good teaching that this church has had historically, we know what Jesus is like in his divinity. But how often do we think about him in his manhood? And this is not an idle question. There was a book discussion that went on a couple of years ago. I was happened to be in a, or happened to be in the car and listening to the radio at the time and it was on, on a Christian radio station and they had a regular noon book discussion. These authors would come in and they'd talk about their books. And this, this guy was in the studio and he was talking about his personal conception of Jesus. What was he like as a man? And he had this picture of Jesus being such a nice and gentle person that the birds would come down and light on their on his finger and he would pet the birds and then send them off. And, I'm, and, and the, the uh, studio people loved it. They thought, oh, that is great. I thought, you got to be kidding. Jesus is not the Snow White of the Walt Disney cartoon of the 1950s where the birds come down. Jesus is a warrior. He's a conqueror. In chapter 2 of Mark, and Mark does this specifically and does this on purpose, Jesus goes out into five different forays into the world, claims what is his, and takes, seizes what is his. And this is the first instance of that. And they're just, they're right together. The first, or all of chapter 2 and the first half of chapter 3. I want to talk about the first one here with the uh, man that is let down. It is not the story of the man being let down. It is a different story entirely. In Mark chapter 1, Jesus performs his father's will and prayer. This is the Jesus we know we, and, and we, we generally think about. He ministers to ordinary people. He brings flocks of people to him, preaches to them, heals them, whatever they need. He casts out demons at the end of the chapter, he even lays his hand on a leper who has become, and this is someone who otherwise is untouchable. The character of Jesus' ministry, though, changes after chapter one. Mark two and three is no longer about giving. Now the text goes to what Jesus takes as his own. Get to the right slide here.
In Mark chapter 1, he gives and he makes friends. In chapter 2, he seizes territory and begins to, uh, to make enemies. I want to read the first part of the chapter again. When he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. Many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when he could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made the opening, they let him down in the bed where the paralytic lay. The story begins as a healing account. It looks like that's where that's the direction where we're going to go. Mark does not tell us how long Jesus has been preaching. There's a lot going on in chapter 1, so it could be a matter of, of weeks, could be a matter of months. We just we don't know. But he is popular. He's extremely popular by this time. Imagine the um, situation. When he comes back to Capernaum and he's, he's at his house, probably where his mother lives as well, uh, he's preaching to a crowd. The whole house is filled with people. People can't get in the door. We have four men bringing in a paralytic. Some people have translated the word as palsy. And if this is palsy, he's shaking as well as being paralyzed. He's, un he's involved in uncontrollable shaking. These four guys want to bring this man to Jesus but they can't, so they do something radical. They take him up to the roof, and they start to dig a hole in the roof. I mean, they're vandalizing somebody else's house, by the way. And uh, there, there was a uh, the miniseries, I think, of Jesus of Nazareth, I think, had this scene there where Jesus is teaching and all this dust and Dirt and everything was falling down, and Jesus kept right on going. It was a great scene. But the four men are involved with this. They open the roof. They let this guy down. And Mark writes, then, I want to look at the first part of, of uh, verse 5 here. Mark writes about Jesus' reaction. When Jesus saw their faith, he didn't care about the house. But he saw their faith. I used to wonder what exactly Jesus saw here, and I finally figured out the answer is quite simple, actually. What he saw was what they did. Several years ago, I uh, read an article um, in a church magazine. It was a church where I was going when I was in the Air Force. And it was, there was a uh, minister that went out to witness a faith healer that had come to California and to much pomp and fanfare. And the place, was, you know, the place where he was was just crowded with people. And it was a rather tragic story, really. Um, the author that had written the article, it was a very well-written article, mentioned several things. One of the things that he felt was kind of anomalous was the fact that there were guards, security guards, all around the faith healer. If this guy is a real, genuine faith healer. Why does he have guards around him? He wants people to come. One of the other things he saw as well was that those who did come appeared, at least in his mind, to be handpicked. 
what did happen was that there was an elderly woman that came in. Apparently, she had gotten through the guards somehow, went up to the faith healer to be healed, and the guy turned her away. This actually happened. Turned her away. He said, you did not have enough faith. And the uh, author continued to write, finally summarized it with a question. He was very cautious about his, uh, about making too many accusatory comments in the gospel. He says, I'm not going to put them down and say this is wrong, but I do have a question at the end. If this woman has spent a considerable amount of her money getting out to see this faith healer, to come to him, to be healed, isn't that enough faith? Jesus sees that faith. He sees the faith that brought these four men to Jesus to drop this guy down through the roof. And Jesus says when he saw their faith, it's interesting too that the faith that we have, we are never called, either in the Old Testament or the New Testament, we are never called to exercise faith alone. We are called to exercise faith in community with each other. The reason is, basically, we need each other. No one of us is ever going to be faithful all the time. No one of us is ever going to be free from stumbling. We need the others in our faith sometimes to take us along when we just do not have the ability to speak words of faith ourselves. This is why Jesus saw, or why Mark mentions, when he saw their faith. And this is where the story then takes a sharp bend. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, does this sound strange to anyone? Isn't this supposed to be the part where Jesus says, okay, I'm going to heal you here, or you are healed uh, because of your faith? If Jesus recognizes the man's faith, the, the men's faith, the four men's faith, why does he not acknowledge them? doesn't say a word about them other than what Mark says, that he saw their faith. He doesn't say anything concerning them. He doesn't worry about healing the man. And presumably, that's why the four men let him down in the first place. And what does Jesus, or what does, what, what does the friend's faith have to do with this man's forgiveness? Jesus' words about forgiveness in verse 5 are disturbing. If we're paying close attention to this, we really need to be disturbed at this point because we expect a healing account. Mark uses this response to show us not just a healer, but a warrior who is about to claim what belongs to him. This particular segment here, the first of five acts of seizure that Jesus is going to do, is about Jesus the warrior who seizes the right to forgive sins. If we go back to the kid's story, this is the part where Joshua comes in and starts chasing the bullies off of the playground. 
Jesus is doing something very active here. He's not coming in as a wimpy little guy that catches birds on his finger. We're not the only ones that find the words jarring. The scribes are shocked as well. Mark writes, now when some of the scribes were sitting there questioning them, questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? The scribes are the scholars of their day. These are the college professors. These are the guys who know all the answers. They have studied the scriptures. They've studied the rabbinical writings. They have debated on these things. They know the, the scripture in and out. They probably have the first five books of the Bible memorized. It would not be unusual for them at all to have all uh, the books of Moses memorized. They know the path of the law exactly. At least they think they do. And they know when someone even steps on a blade of grass at the edge of the road. So in their minds, when Jesus says your sins are forgiven, this is like not only just stepping on a blade of grass, this is going off the road, hopping the fence, and going into the no trespassing area. The issue is about forgiveness. This is where this, this account is going. It is not about the healing. It is about forgiveness. The healing comes in. But the main issue of this account is about forgiveness. So if we're going to be looking at that, we need to specify exactly what forgiveness means here. Because we can look at it in two different senses. One sense is the sense in which we have it in the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us this day our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. That's personal. That is personal forgiveness. And that has to do with fellowship among believers and sometimes non-believers, and, and the fellowship between us and our God. God forgives, and therefore we do not count other people's sin against them as well. That's not the forgiveness that Jesus is talking about. It's not the forgiveness that the scribes are talking about. What the scribes and what Jesus are talking about is absolute forgiveness. It means I absolve you of your sins. You are hereby free from condemnation. Jesus has made this declaration to the man. Now, does Jesus know he's going to trigger the scribes? You bet he does. This is the whole point of the passage. And in their knee-jerk reaction, lets him seize what belongs to him. They can't see, and neither can we. No one human, no human being can see the work of God on a person's heart. No one can see that moment where the Holy Spirit awakens us to who we are, to who God is, and makes us alive in him so that we come to him in faith. That's invisible. That's a work of the heart, but God sees it. Now, Jesus is claiming to go into that moment here. And what he's going to do next is show that he is not only going to claim it, he's going to do it as well. Mark writes this, Immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned him within themselves, said to them, 
Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? I don't think the question is so much saying, it's rather doing. They're either way, they're about the same. But if Jesus can do the miracle, then we better believe that he is capable of doing the miracle within the heart as well. So we come to verse 10 then. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And then he turns to the paralytic and says to him, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he arose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. I'm going to guess here, I don't know for sure, but I'm going to guess here that this miracle was probably a, on a level higher than what the people had seen so far. Mark does not specify exactly what kind of miracles are going on, but I think this is one that is, has taken, a, taken him to a new level in miracle working, and they get the picture Mark shows that Jesus can claim the right to forgive sins because he has the ability to heal. And he says this himself. The closer that I have studied this passage and have looked at it over a period of time, the more certain I am that this story is not about the paralyzed man or his four friends. It's not about the hole in the roof, and it's a big deal for our Sunday school kids, and there's nothing wrong with that. It is not even about the healing. The single point is that Jesus claims the right to forgive sins once for all, and he proves his right. He seizes that right. No one can take it back from him. The reason this is important to me, and it should be important to all of us for this reason, is that Jesus is not a little wimpy guy. He's a warrior. And he has come and he has to be a warrior from the day that he starts his ministry all the way to the day that he goes to the cross. And I think we would not want it any other way. We need a warrior going to the cross because he's a warrior sacrifices himself in a meaningful way when he dies on the cross. <coughs> I've been listening recently to a podcast on uh, called Echoes of the Vietnam War. It's been, it was my war, so I'm interested in it. One of the episodes was on the chaplaincy in Vietnam, and they mentioned the fact that there are 16 chaplains' names that appear on the Vietnam Wall, meaning 16 chaplains during the war died in battle. Think about that. These are the guys who ministered God's word, but they were out in the battle doing so. I'm sure this was not Vietnam alone. Every war that we've ever had, I'm sure, has had chaplains that have gone out to sacrifice themselves. One in particular was a Catholic chaplain named Father Capadano. He was a Navy chaplain serving in the 3rd Battalion, 5th Marine Division. 
and was killed, <coughs> excuse me, on September 4th, 1967. He used his body to shield a wounded medic and was shot three times. That was the last three of 20 wounds that he had received in his tour of duty in Vietnam. He was awarded the Medal of Honor posthumously. That's the highest medal that the Congress gives. There were two of those awarded to chaplains during the Vietnam War. The only way to get that medal is not for great acts of bravery. It's great acts of bravery on behalf of other people, on behalf of the other fellow soldiers. When you rescue somebody or when you, when you did as uh, um, Chaplain Capadano did and gave himself up for another soldier. This is purposeful surrender. It is the kind of surrender that Jesus gave and involved himself in. He was not a passive minister, just like the chaplains were not passive ministers. They are warriors who go in to do battle, and they sacrifice themselves ultimately in the battle that they serve. We need that kind of warrior to go to the cross. <coughs> and Jesus is a warrior in that sense, in every sense of the word. I want to take this to just a very brief conclusion. Most of us are Christians, possibly all of us are Christians, and we understand this. If you are not a Christian today, think about what Jesus has done. Here is a man who has fought for your life. He has fought from the day he started to minister all the way to the cross. And he has concluded that fight with the ultimate sacrifice of his life but he has been a warrior the whole way and he has seized the territory for you. We can come to faith in Christ in confidence because he has already done the work for us. And if you are here today and you do not know him, I urge you, talk to one of us about this. Don't go until you make it right before him because our eternal souls depend on it and if we belong to him we know that Jesus has taken our souls as well and will protect him and will take us into the kingdom because he is able <clears throat>